So, good evening, everyone. Wonderful to see you all here in person and online. So, today I will speak on the Sutra of Those of Kasaputta. So, this teaching is very much a part of what I love of our beautiful Zen tradition. Whatever Buddhism is, or whatever Zen practice is, it derives from the simple yet all illuminating practice of self-determination of truth, as evidenced by our own conduct, our own experience, our own suffering. To study the Buddha way is to study ourselves. Our faith and our practice derives from our own light within. In this sutra, the Buddha and his followers were coming to the town of Kesaputta, spreading the teachings and begging for alms. At that time, traveling spiritual teachers were common and welcome and a somewhat festive event. Later, as Buddhism spread to China, the monastic model became more the norm. Then in Japan, the monasteries and the village zendos and now here we find ourselves evolving to pop-up sendos and Zoom. So I imagine the Buddha coming to Kesaputta, somewhat like the Buddha coming to our own Marin County at Spirit Rock and speaking to followers in the fields there like Technahan, Ramdas, Jack Kornfeld, Norman, and numerous other religious teachers have done. Our extended San Francisco Bay community has always been a magnet to spiritual or life teachers outside of the traditional realm. Everything from Est and Transcendental Meditation, Diamond Heart, Vipassana, Theravadan, Hindu, the non-dualism of uh, uh, um, Advaita Vedanta, yogic teachings, and so many more. Many of us likely were spiritual seekers at some point in our lives, so we would know this. So now to the sutra. Thus have I heard. On a certain occasion, the exalted one, while going about his rounds among the, the Kasalans with a great company of monks, came to Kesaputta, a district of the Kasalans. Now the Kalamas of Kesaputta heard it said that Gotama the recluse, the Sakyan son, who went forth as a wanderer from the Sakyan clan, had reached Kesaputta. And this good report was, noise, was noised abroad about Gotama, the exalted one, thus. He is the exalted one, Arhant, a fully enlightened one perfect in knowledge and practice and so forth. It were indeed a good thing to get sight of such arhats. So the Kalamas of Kasaputta came to see the exalted one. On reaching him, some saluted the exalted one and sat down on one side. Some greeted the exalted one courteously. And after the exchange of greetings and courtesies, sat down at one side. Some raised their joined palms to the exalted one and sat down on one side. Some proclaimed their name and clan and did likewise, 
while others, without saying anything, just sat down to one side. So clearly, here you have some who are followers, some who are quite in adulation of him, and some spiritual seekers, kind of what you'd expect. Then as they thus sat, the Kalamas of Kesaputta said this to the exalted one. Sir, certain recluses and Brahmins come to Kesaputta. As to their own view, they proclaim and expound it in full. But as to the view of others, they abuse it, revile it, depreciate and cripple it. Moreover, sir, other recluses and Brahmins on coming to Kesaputta do likewise. When we listen to them, sir, we have doubt and wavering as to which of these worthies is speaking truth and which speaks falsehood. We of everyday Zen and Marin know this well. So many spiritual paths with conflicting views. You are a sinner needing redemption. No, you are a Buddha blinded by delusion. Prayer and sacrifice is the path. No, it is personal inquiry. No, it is non-dualism. No, it is no self. No, there absolutely is a self with an eternal soul. No, it is just sitting zazen. No, it is direct realization. No, it is a hug. No, it is Gaia. No, it is the twirl of a dance. No, it is speaking in tongues. No, it is sacred ritual. No, it is angels. The devil made me do it. No, it is the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. No, there is nothing at all. No, it is no fear. No, you must fear for your eternal soul. No, I must attain nirvana. No, there is nothing to attain. And nirvana is right here. I must endlessly return to save all beings. We of Marin and everyday Zen, listen to them, sir. We have doubt and wavering as to which of these worthies is speaking truth and which speaks falsehood. Why, Buddha, should we believe in you? Yes, Kalamas, you may well doubt, you may well waver. In a doubtful manner, wavering does arise. Notice here, the Buddha is not offended by the question. He never, never disparages those seeking the truth or seeking other teachings. He himself was a spiritual wanderer for years and gleaned the best of the common threads of many teachings. Instead, he is not defensive. He doesn't default or fall back to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as if he were on a campaign of conversion. He hears and responds directly to the Kalamas, question to the Kalamas question and says, yes, you should be doubtful. Of course you're confused and goes on to help guide them to come to their own truth of any spiritual understanding, including his own. Now look, you Kalamas, 
Be ye not misled by report or tradition or hearsay. Be not misled by proficiency in the collections, how many sutras they have, nor by mere logic or inference, nor after considering reason, nor after reflection on an approval of some theory, nor because it fits becoming, nor out of respect for a recluse who holds it. But Kalamas, when you know for yourselves, I repeat, when you know for yourselves, these things are unprofitable. These things are blameworthy. These things are censured by the intelligent. These things, when performed and undertaken, conduce to loss and sorrow. Then indeed, do you reject them, Kalamas. So first, get over all the trappings of the teachings, how popular they are, how extensive the dogma or the theory, or how charismatic the teacher, his or her spiritual demeanor, or even out of respect for the teacher or teachings themselves. Perhaps the charismatic teacher can be even more of a concern at times, appealing to some other part of ourselves rather than the teachings alone. This over-reliance on the teacher reminds me of when Ananda weepingly, weepingly laments to the Buddha in the Surangama Sutra. Ever since I followed the Buddha and resolved to enter the monastic life, I have relied on the Buddha's awe-inspiring spirit. I have often thought, there is no reason for me to toil at spiritual practice because I just expected that the thus come one would graciously transfer some of his samadhi to me in body or in mind. Thus, I abandoned my original resolve. And though my body has indeed entered the monastic life, my mind has not entered the path. Today, I realize that though I am learned, I might as well not have learned anything if I do not practice. Just as someone who only talks of food never gets full. So we must know the teachings for ourselves. The teacher cannot save you and should not save you. He or she should only redirect and guide you to look more closely within. Your own practice, your own knowledge within is critical, critical to the path. So the Buddha then directs us, not even to the individual teachings or teachers, but to the effect of the teachings on their lives and on their conduct. It's not even important if it's supposedly true or not. It's whether the teaching causes pain and suffering or relieves pain and suffering. The answers lie within our own lives, our own experiences, our own conduct your own suffering and to the veracity of any teachings. When you know for yourselves, 
This is the light unto oneself. This is the illumination within. This is the true path. And being human, we are all aware of our own life struggles with greed, hate, and delusion and their effects on our lives. Clearly, they affect our conduct. In his early teachings, the Buddha identified these three poisons or these three negative qualities of the mind as causing most of our problems or problems with the world. Greed is also translated as attachment or lust. Hatred, often translated as anger or aversion and delusion often translated as just ignorance. No matter the literal translation, we all know these three defilements well from our own practice and living, especially with the precepts. So for those of you here, I want you to look at this handout that I had. And for those online, Shafi, could you do the share screen for a brief point in time? So. Uh, what this depicts is the, uh, the three poisons. Uh, they're depicted in the center of the wheel of life, which is a vis visual representation of the sorrows of samsara, the wheel of life. Greed here is, <clears throat> is depicted as the rooster on the top. Hatred as the snake, because hatred can come out of nowhere, right, and attack, and delusion as the pig. Importantly, they literally are feeding off one another in a vicious cycle of delusion. So the centrality of these poisons demonstrates their role in powering the traditional Buddhist cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, and escape, the escape from which is nirvana. And by the way, Chris Fortin is going to be speaking more on the Wheel of Life in one of our upcoming sittings. So now, uh, perhaps we could take the screen share off. And um, I'll continue with the, uh, excuse me, I will continue with the teaching. So now the Buddha says, now what think ye, Kalamas? When greed arises within a man, does it arise to its profit or to his loss? To his loss, sir. Now, Kalamas, does not this man thus become greedy, being overcome by greed and losing control of his mind? Does he not kill a living creature? Take what is not given. Go after another's wife. Tell lies and lead another into such a state as causes his loss and sorrow for a long time. He does, sir. Breaking precepts. Now what think ye, Kalamas, when malice arises within a man? Does it arise to his profit or to his loss? To his loss, sir. Now, Kalamas, does not this man thus become malicious? Being overcome by malice and losing control of his mind, does he not kill a living creature, take what is not given and the rest of the precepts, and lead another into such a state as causes his loss and sorrow for a long time? 
He does indeed, sir. Now what think ye, Kalamas? When delusion arises within a man, does it arise to his profit or to his loss? To his loss, sir. And does this not, and does not this man thus deluded likewise mislead another to his loss and sorrow for a long time? He does, sir. Well then, Kalamas, what think ye? Are these things profitable or unprofitable? Unprofitable, sir. Are they blameworthy or not? Blameworthy, sir. Are they censured by the intelligent or not? They are censured, sir. If performed an undertaking, do they conduce to loss and sorrow or not? They conduce to loss and sorrow, sir. It is just so, methinks. So then, Kalamas, as to my words to you just now, be ye not misled by proficiency in the collections, nor mere logic or inference, not after considering reasons, nor after reflection on and approval of some theory, not because it fits becoming, nor out of respect for a recluse who holds it, but Kalamas, when you know for yourselves. These things are unprofitable. These things are blameworthy. These things are censured by the intelligent. These things, when performed and undertaken, conduce to loss and sorrow. Then indeed do ye reject them. Such was my reason for uttering these words. So, when you know for yourselves, in your heart-mind, that a teaching leads to more loss and sorrow, more suffering rather than relieving suffering, indeed do you reject them. Here I see the Buddha acting from the perspective of a healer, healing suffering. So how do we know whether a teaching is leading us to more suffering? from studying our own conduct, our own experience, our own suffering to determine the validity of any teaching. Has the teaching helped us refrain from bad actions or not? Our actions, our conduct define us and conduct as we all know from our precepts training is central. The Buddha is telling us it is through our conduct resulting in relation to the teachings that we will know our own truth. If our conduct does not align with the precepts, killing, stealing, lying, etc., we will suffer. If it does, we will relieve our suffering. So now the Buddha reverses his formula for finding the truth within the negative, excuse me, his formula for finding the truth within from the negative result of living the three defilements of greed, hate, and delusion on our conduct to the positive results of being free from the three defilements and the positive result on our conduct and actions 
of living with the precepts rather than breaking them. Whereas in living the defilements, we are blameworthy, censured, and suffering. In being free from them, we are unblameworthy, intelligent, praised, and happy. Come now, Kalamas, be ye not so misled. But if at any time you know of yourselves, these things are profitable, they are blameless, they are praised by the intelligent. These things, when performed and undertaken, conduce to profit and happiness. Then, Kalamas, do ye haven't undertaken them, abide therein. Now what think ye, Kalamas, when freedom from greed arises in a man? Does it arise to his profit or his loss? To his profit, sir. Does not this man, not being greedy, not overcome by greed, having his mind under control, does he not cease to slay and so forth, cease breaking the precept? Does he not cease to mislead another into a state that shall be to his loss and sorrow for a long time? He does, sir. Now what think ye, Kalamas, when freedom from malice arises within a man, does it arise to his profit or to his loss? To his profit, sir. Does not this man, not being malicious, not being overcome by malice, but having his mind under control, does he not cease to slay and so forth? Does he not lead another into such a state as causes his profit? and happiness for a long time, sir. He does, sir. And is it not the same with regard to freedom from illusion? Yes, sir. Then, Kalamas, what think ye? Are these things profitable or unprofitable? Profitable, sir. Are they blameworthy or not? They are not, sir. Are they censured or praised by the intelligent? They are praised, sir. When performed and undertaken, do they conduce happiness or not? They do conduce to happiness, sir. It is just so, methinks. So then, Kalamas, as to my words to you just now, be ye not misled, but when ye know for yourselves these things are profitable and conduce to happiness. Do ye undertake them and abide therein? Such was my reason for uttering them. And the Buddha then goes on. Now Kalamas, he who is a disciple freed from coveting and malevolence who is not bewildered, but self-controlled and mindful. Now notice there are some new words coming in here. Mindful, with a heart possessed by goodwill, by compassion, possessed by sympathy, by equanimity. That is widespread, grown great and boundless, free from enmity and oppression. 
such a one abides suffusing one quarter of the world therein likewise the second third and fourth quarter of the world and in like manner above below across everywhere for all sorts and conditions he abides suffusing the whole world with a heart possessed by equanimity that is widespread grown great and boundless free from enmity and oppression so now here the buddha is referencing the four heartfelt buddhist practices of loving kindness metta compassion tonglen sympathetic joy and equanimity the four immeasurables or the four unlimited abodes unlimited in that they suffuse in all directions throughout the universe above below and all around without limit these practices help us to open our hearts and be the compassionate loving bodhisattvas we are meant to be and overcome our own limited self greed hate and delusion so greed hate and delusion are limited these are unlimited that's why they overcome them they're they're vast they extend way beyond our mere selves fortunately our western zen tradition has widely embraced these practices of the four unlimited abodes along with a strong emphasis on the precepts into our zen practice along and of course our traditional meditation practices of zen which is just sitting we know well of loving kindness or metta from john's weekly metta practice after our mor- monday morning sittings our everyday zen version of the metta sutta that we use and many of us recite every day was even modified by norman and mel to better reflect our zen bodhisattva vows they rewrote the last few lines from the traditional not holding to fixed views endowed with insights the pure hearted one is not born again into this world or will never again no rebirth samsara two the one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death that was their modification that's our metta sutta we are not leaving the samsara world but fulfill our bodhisattva vows to endlessly return over and over again until all beings are safe and tonglen is of course the practice of compassion the practice of feeling another's pain and suffering and offering healing prayers breathing in the suffering breathing out happiness and peace we turn toward the suffering rather than shy away from it sympathetic joy 
is the wonderful practice of feeling another's joy or success as if it were your own and not engaging in jealousy or envy. We had a great opportunity to practice with Jeff's recovery of thousands of dollars of his dance floor business that had recently been stolen. In the practice of equanimity for others is perhaps most needed now in our polarized country. Equanimity means to have an equally positive feeling as much as you can to everyone. Equally positive feeling as much as you can to everyone. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. Sometimes these practices are uncomfortable, especially taking in another's pain and suffering or treating everyone equally. We may become aware of our own suffering or limitations in the process and what we need to work on. I sense these are particularly good practices for us men in softening the rough edges of our masculine behavior. I found on reflecting on the tragic deaths of over 100 people in the Maui fires this last week or two, I felt sympathy and caring, but I was resisting taking on the feeling of their suffering. It was almost too raw, too scary. but I don't want to become numb to the cries of the world. So I started practicing the Tonglen teachings of breathing in their suffering and breathing out compassion and healing and well-being. It was unsettling, but I did slowly get to take the compassion to heart rather than the mere words or the mere idea. I can't speak for women, but I feel they have a deeper natural knowledge of these teachings of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. We have much to learn from the motherly mind and feminine heart of our female teachers and practitioners. Motherly love is a powerful thing. Just as a child at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So practicing these four immeasurables together with an honest appraisal of our conduct and our actions will inform us of our living the teachings and that our practice is pure and true. The truth lies in each of us to uncover, to unfold our inner light. If we follow the teachings, if our actions live up to the precepts, we will overcome greed, hate, and delusion and live the four immeasurables of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Our actions of living our precepts will define us 
why we spend so much time on precept practice. And this, along with Sazen, is the source of our faith in the practice. The faith helps us develop the confidence and conviction in our ability to engage in this practice and the wisdom that this path really is our true way. There is faith in Zazen. And the Buddha goes on to say that in doing all this, we will receive four benefits. By that disciple whose heart is thus free from enmity, free from oppression, untainted and made pure, by such in this very life, four comforts are attained thus. One, if there be, if there be a world beyond, if there be fruit and ripening of deeds done well or ill, then when the body breaks up after death, I shall be reborn in the happy lot, in the heaven world. This is the first comfort he attains. So wait a minute, if there be a world beyond, if rebirth exists, if heaven exists, I shall be reborn in a happy lot or perhaps nirvana. Are these just more skillful means like the Buddha says in the Lotus Sutra? I love the fact that the Buddha has the, the humility to not assert he knows for certain. If rebirth or heaven even exists, it may, but it may not. So perhaps we should be less attached to this belief in our practice. I don't know. The Buddha goes on with the second comfort. If, however, there be no world beyond, no fruit and ripening of deeds done well or ill. Yet in this very life, this life, do I hold myself free from enmity and oppression, sorrowless and well. This is the second comfort he attains. So even if no heaven exists, I will be a very happy and contented man or woman by the pure life I am living. Third, though as a result of action, ill be done by me, ill be done by me, yet do I plan no ill to anyone. I didn't mean it. And if I do no ill otherwise, I think, how can sorrow touch me? This is the third comfort he attains. So if perchance, I cause unintended, unintended pain or ill to anyone. But I'm really living the practice, really living the practice. I would be blameless and not suffer. You don't have to worry or be too upset of it, about it under those circumstances. And fourth, but if as a result of action, no ill be done by me, then in both ways do I hold, behold myself utterly pure. This is the fourth comfort he attains. 
So lastly, if, if I cause no ill will or suffering in the first place, I am completely blameless and completely happy and pure. Thus, Kalamas, that disciple whose heart is free from enmity, free from oppression, untainted and made pure, in this very life attains these four comforts. So it is, exalted one, so it is, welfare. That disciple in this very life attains these four comforts, and they repeated all that had been said. Uh, they repeated all that had been said, parenthetically. Excellent, sir. We here do go for refuge to the exalted one, to Dharma, and to the order of monks. May the exalted one accept us as lay followers from this day forth, so long as life shall last, who have so taken refuge. So, people of everyday Zen, people of Marin, what have we learned? To study our conduct, to learn from our own experience, and to study your own suffering to determine the validity of any teaching. Our suffering is very much a part of it. And we are called upon to expand our heart and share with the boundless universe, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity to overcome our own greed, hate and delusion leaving the guilt behind with self-love and compassion. We can honestly watch our actions and open our awareness of how we might improve. Our precept training is just this, training us to constantly be aware of our actions in light of the teachings for the benefit of all beings we will know for ourselves our own truth. And if we are not living a life of love and compassion, something is missing. Perhaps another spiritual path would be better. If we can't derive the love and compassion out of our teachings, we are missing the point. As Norman often says, it is always there. And as Matthew Richard, the famous French monk and past interpreter of the Dalai Lama, said recently in a New York Times article that was just in the Times just two days ago or so, uh, you know, when speaking on compassion and happiness, quote, it takes a whole life but it is the most worthy thing you can do. I'm happy to feel I am on the right track. If we adhere to the path and heaven exists, we are going there. If it doesn't, we are likely some of the happiest and most well-balanced people in the world and either return to free all beings our return to the great matter from which we came. I know I likely need many more lifetimes to live the precepts fully.
to truly become the compassionate and loving person we are all called to be by our own Buddha nature. And I am fine with this because my Bodhisattva vows of returning and returning till all are awakened is also my own awakening. Why fear death when our commitment to return for many lifetimes of wrestling with delusion and suffering to grow and contribute to awakening of the world lie ahead? And if not, I become, if I become fodder for the universe, I am at peace with living as best I can in my own karmic circumstances and gladly join with the great matter from which I came. Thus have I heard. Thank you all for listening and thank you for your practice. Oh, that's a long sutra. <laughs> and thank you, Neil, for your voice. I, I, I really appreciate your projection for the, for the recording. So we're going to be splitting into groups now um, of three. I'm sure you know we have a fair amount of time. It's what six fifteen, so maybe four four minutes apiece, Shafi. Groups of three, and um, those who need to leave can leave. Um, obviously, these are all in confidence. These discussions. And the question I'm going to ask you, I mean, it's the obvious one. Are we, are we questioning ourselves and our conduct in our practice? How do you look at your own conduct, your own experiences and suffering to inform your practice and your truth? So again, how are we questioning ourselves and our conduct in our practice? How do you look at your own conduct, experiences, and suffering to inform your practice and your truth? And otherwise, you can speak on whatever, whatever has arisen for you in the process of this. Um, so that's